Good morning, my name is Carl. The Old Testament reads um, Exodus chapter 14, verses 15 to 22, and 26 to 29 from the New Living Translation. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the people to get moving. Pick up your staff and raise your hand over the sea. Divide the water so the Israelites can walk through the middle of the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, and they will charge in after the Israelites. My great glory will be displayed in Pharaoh and his troops, his chariots and his charioteers. When my glory is displayed through them, all Egypt will see my glory and know that I am the Lord. Then the angel of God, who had been leading the people of Israel, moved from the rear, moved to the rear of the camp. The pillar of cloud also moved from the front and stood behind them. The cloud settled between the Egyptian and Israelite camps. As darkness fell, the cloud turned to fire, lighting up the night. But the Egyptians and the Israelites did not approach each other all night. Then Moses raised his hand over the sea, and the Lord opened up a path through the water with a strong east wind. The wind blew all that night, turning the seabed into dry land, so the the people of Israel walked through the middle of the sea on dry ground, with walls of water on each side. When all the Israelites had reached the other side, the Lord said to Moses, Raise your hand over the sea again, then the waters will rush back and cover the Egyptians and their chariots and charioteers. So as the sun began to rise, Moses raised his hand over the sea, and the waters rushed back into its usual place. The Egyptians tried to escape, but the Lord swept them into the sea. Then the waters returned and covered the chariots and charioteers, the entire army of Pharaoh. Of all the Egyptians who had chased the Israelites into the sea, not a single one survived. But the people of Israel had walked through the middle of the sea on dry ground as the water stood up like a wall on both sides. The word of the Lord. Hello, my name is Kira. The New Testament reading is found in Romans 6, 1 through 4. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. The word of the Lord. Hello, my name is Kirsten. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading. Luke 9, verse 23 through 27. Then he said to them all, If anybody wants to become my follower, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it benefit a person if he gains the whole world and forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of that person when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you most certainly, there are some standing here who will not experience death before they see the kingdom of God. The Gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. We're doing a series that we just began last week called Sacred, and I mentioned last week as we were beginning uh, this series that very often, um, well I shouldn't say very often, from time to time, I'll have conversations particularly with a young person 
who, who comes to me saying, I just can't believe this anymore, referring to Christianity, or saying, I just can't be part of this anymore, I can't believe what Christians have done or what Christians say. And I appreciate these conversations because it's one of those rare moments that you know someone is really being honest with you. Uh, that probably all of us from time to time have had that experience when we open up the Bible or when we sit in church and we listen to the Bible being read or when we um, have you know, conversations with other Christians. Probably all of us have had a moment where we've said, wait a minute, I can't really believe that. I mean, that's, what do we do with that? That sounds absurd or that sounds crazy. And, and I'm not sure I want to be part of this group of people anyway because have you seen what they said about this issue or that issue? Or have you seen the way they responded in our city? about you know? And so very often we're quick to disassociate ourselves, not just from Christians, but sometimes even from Christianity. And I, I appreciate these conversations not because I am, you know, sort of this person that delights in, in seeing someone whose faith is falling apart. I don't. But I appreciate these conversations because there is in the midst of that moment the chance for a person to gain a good and sincere faith. There is an opportunity in that moment to have this kind of faith, the kind of faith that they maybe inherited Maybe the kind of faith that they sort of grew up with that was narrow or, 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 or maybe um, overly simplistic or formulaic. There is a gift about that faith deconstructing. To say it simply, if, and if I can be so bold as to say it this way, well, I said it last week, so I'll say it again this week. I think there is a kind of faith that is worth losing. I think there's a kind of faith that is worth watching shatter and watching it be deconstructed and fall apart. And I, I know that it's a very vulnerable place because in that moment you could say, all right, so, so now what? What shall I put in its place? What will I reconstruct? A lot of people that I talk to have perfected the art of deconstructing things. They're very good at saying, well, that doesn't work because of this. And so it's very in vogue in our day to, to be cynical. Because you can point out the flaws or the insincerities or the hypocrisies. You go, oh, well, that's, I don't believe in that, and I don't believe in that, and look at that person, and look at that person, and look at this thing. And so it's, 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 it's very easy to do that. But the question, the great question, I think, facing our day is, what will we put in its place? Yes, there are versions of Christianity that are worth deconstructing. Yes, there, are, there is a kind of faith that was probably too fragile and too formulaic to, be, to survive. Yes, that's true. But then what shall we put in its place? Shall we turn to another person? Shall we turn to another superstar? Shall we turn to another celebrity? This is All Saints Sunday. A couple days ago, November 1st, was All Saints Day, and I wrote a little blog comparing the difference between saints and celebrities and how this whole idea for me of, of thinking about saints is really foreign because I don't, I, I'm, I'm like an evangelical. I grew up in a Pentecostalish, charismatic sort of church. Like, we don't talk about saints because nobody's perfect, right? The problem is, I think there's something in all of us that's looking for someone to follow. And so without saints, what we fill in their place are famous Christians, celebrities. Except that there's this big difference between saints and celebrities. For one, you had to wait till you, long after you were dead before you could be called a saint. And so we had to watch your whole life, not just this shooting star moment of your life where we all thought you were awesome. 
And by contrast, saints were often the ones who the most beautiful things they did were hidden during their lifetime. Stephen Todd told me about a saint that he saw a story of when he visited a, a, a church in Germany. This woman who had extraordinary care. And nobody, nobody really, it wasn't like this thing was, had great renown during her lifetime. But the inspiration continued long after her life. See, we do the opposite. We look for men and women that are the shooting stars, that have the largest churches and the best-selling books and the biggest names and that are on all the conferences or on TV. And we say, that's who I'm going to follow. And then all of a sudden we realize, but that wasn't worth following. Maybe. Sometimes credibility leads to popularity, but oftentimes there's popularity without any credibility. This is what I mean when I say there is a kind of faith worth deconstructing. There is a kind of faith that is either formulaic or, or focused on an individual that's worth seeing it kind of fall apart. And really in those moments you can receive a beautiful grace. And the grace is this. The grace is in realizing that actually the faith is not yours. I want to read again, as I read last week, this quote from one of my supervisors over in England. And she said this. She said, I discovered... I used to wonder why I still had my faith after all I had done to lose it. And then I came to see that it wasn't really mine to lose. It is the faith of the church. And I participate in it. I don't possess it. Take a moment and think about that phrase. I participate in it. I don't possess it. We like to possess things. This is my house, my car, my space. Well, that's not so hip anymore, but my whatever, <laughs> my territory, my stuff, my job, my calling, my salvation, my faith. Thank you very much. And then we forget that actually when it comes to faith, that it is not yours. And how marvelously freeing that is. How wonderfully liberating it is to realize that the faith is not yours as if it's yours to defend or yours to lose or yours to protect. That the faith belongs to the great company of the saints. The whole church. The big C church. The church that Jesus began. The church that the Spirit breathed upon. The church that the Spirit of God has caused to still flourish and thrive even through some very dark days. Even amidst opposition, even through its own failures, even through corrupt leaders. A church that somehow by the miracle and mystery of God is still here today. The faith is not ours to own or to lose we participate in it, but we do not possess it. This series is called Sacred because it's about the sacred practices that remind us of our identity, that remind us of how we participate in this faith that has been gifted to us, this faith that has been passed on to us. There are things that we do, that we rehearse, that are a way of keeping us tied to the story. Last week I used the illustration of that episode in Little House on the Prairie where, you know, where, where there's a blizzard coming in, I think it's Christmas Eve or something, and Pa says, I'm going to put the rope up between the house and the barn. And how I learned through talking about this more with my farmer father-in-law, that you put the rope up between the house and the barn so that when the snowstorm is blinding, you have something that leads you home. 
Even though it should be so easy, it should be so simple, of course we will never forget where home is. I want to suggest to you that when we lived in a day where Christianity was the general assumption, maybe even the presupposition for discussions, for decisions, even in the public life, maybe ropes, a rope that led us home was not as critical. But I want to suggest to you that we don't live in that day anymore. That you can make a reference to a Bible story and someone will say, I'm sorry, what? Who's that? Never heard of that story. Or you can, you know, this isn't the day where Shakespeare and the King James Bible are both like foundationary pieces for, you know, the English language. But never mind that. I think the loss is that as Christians we find ourselves walking through a world in which there are many noises and many voices and it feels like a blinding snowstorm and someone wants to say, wait a minute, how do we know that this faith that we are participating in is the same faith that Jesus began with his disciples? What is the rope that binds us? What is the thing that connects us back to it? And so last week we talked about the Holy Spirit because we said, listen, before we get on with talking about specific practices, we have to say that it is the Spirit that breathes through these practices. We talked all about that. Today I want to talk to you about baptism. And I think there is something to say here about baptism that is not just for the people who have never been baptized. If you've never been baptized, next week is your chance. And I'll say to you in the great and immortal words of Nacho Libre, how come you have not been baptized? I've been getting a little concerned about your salvation and stuff. But for all of you who have been baptized, there is something of resonance for you in this, for all of us. We need to be reminded of our baptism for at least two reasons. Romans 6. We read this this morning in the New Testament reading. We'll just go quickly through it. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us have, who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into His death? We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of of life. Baptism is, first of all, identification with Christ. It's identification with Christ. It is the step in which we say, I'm going down into the waters just as Christ went down into the grave. And as I'm raised up out of the waters, it's me saying, I am being raised up with Christ. Paul says, listen, you were baptized into his death. And we're going to say more about that in a moment. But then you've been raised up. There's a glory that follows this. Here's the thing. By identifying with Christ, we actually gain a new identity. If you're the note-taking kind and you're writing down identification with Christ, you could also put a dash next to it and just say, new identity. Baptism is new identity. That's why in a very real sense, baptism is both a funeral and a birth. Because something old is dying and something new is coming into this world. Our Old Testament reading is a, is a, is a well-known Old Testament story, right? Of Israel passing through the Red Sea. 
And it does bring up all sorts of troubling questions about, well, what's the point of destroying all these Egyptians and, and did they have a second chance? And, and there's a whole other sermon to be had about that, about corporate communal sins and how the mercy and justice of God eliminates that sin from spreading throughout all of the world. And we'll talk about that some other time. But what I want you to see from the Exodus text is this. At the Red Sea, there is both death and new life. And the Red Sea was sort of Israel's baptism moment, their old identity. They identified with Egypt. In fact, many of them, even in the wilderness, said, God, remember Egypt? Remember their old Keith Green song, So You Want to Go Back to Egypt? Right? And God was saying, No, look, let's put a death to that old identity. So that when you pass through the waters and you look back and you say, where is that guy? Where are the things I used to identify with? And, and God's saying, it's gone. And you're like, so we're starting from scratch here? We're brand new? And he's saying, yes. You get a new identity. This is a foreshadow of baptism. But baptism is also, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12 and 13. Paul says this, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. And then he goes on and says, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of the Spirit. Baptism is also initiation into the body of Christ. Now we were talking this week and someone said, I don't like the word initiation because it reminds me of like, middle school and wedgies and stuff like that you know like the things and bad memories of being initiated into something um, this is uh, the most positive kind of initiation you could think of this is this is saying that you are in in the way that we have always longed to belong you know that ache in our hearts that says who who are my people have you, ever, have you ever had that? Maybe some of you that have moved to different cities, you felt this. I've certainly felt this moving from Malaysia to America and taking different times. And, and, and maybe some of you know this, 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 this ache of saying, where do I belong? Who's my tribe? Who are my people? And sometimes you come to church and you're like, oh, I see, everybody's like that. Well, that's not me. And maybe the temptation is to find a church where you can find people who are just like you. In fact, sadly, I was at a pastor's roundtable recently where someone basically said the reason to have multi-site church is so people can go to church with people just like them. And I died in my heart, a small little death, as I heard this mega church pastor who leads a large association of churches speaking to young church planters say you should start multiple sites so that people can go to church with others who are just like them no 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 paul doesn't take the trouble to name jews and greeks slaves and free because he thinks you should go to church with people just like you i mean if there's any more if there's, if there's a group that's more unlike each other, is there a group that's more unlike each other than in the first century Jews and Greeks? Greeks who valued philosophy and thought of material things as being separate from spiritual things. And Jews who saw the spiritual in the material. Who every time they ate unleavened bread and had festivals and feasts were thinking to themselves, something supernatural is happening here. And the Greeks who were the ones who were saying, who cares what you do in the body? Matter doesn't matter. And Paul says, all of y'all are in Christ. 
and you're now one new people. And they're saying, well, surely there should be a church for like Greek Christians and a church for Jewish Christians because we've got cultural differences, Paul. And then as if cultural and ethnic differences weren't enough, Paul says slaves and free. Now you're touching on economic differences and status issues and, and clean and unclean and prejudices. Now we're really saying, Paul, you you don't mean this, do you? You don't really mean that being baptized means I am one with Him. You don't really mean that being baptized means I'm one with them. Those people. Now think for a minute of all the ways you define your identity. Probably you define it by being an American. Probably you define it by whether you were for health care, this particular version of it, or not. You might define it in whether you call it the Affordable Care Act or the Not-So-Affordable Care Act. You define it by political lines. Maybe you define it by whether you live downtown or in the burbs. Maybe your identity is in whether you work for a ministry or whether you work for the man, you know? Corporate America. (laughs) We have all these things. Whether you're a Chiefs fan, God help you, (laughs) or a Broncos fan. We have all these ways of marking our identity. We look at a group of people and we say, ha, 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 that's my people. And Paul says something astonishing happens when you get baptized. Everyone in Christ becomes your people. You're like, well, I'm not ready for that. (laughs) No, we're not ready for that. But that is the costly gift of the gospel. The costly gift of the gospel is, it says, I've got good news, you belong to a family. And you're like, oh my God, I've been longing for family. Thank you, I belong. belong." And then you open your eyes and you say, but the bad news is so does she. (laughs) And so does he. And so do they. And so do they. And and you're like, they're all in my family too? Dude, I thought Thanksgiving holidays were bad, you know. Imagine Sunday mornings. Listen. We could make New Life Downtown a homogenous, monolithic church. But I have no interest in doing that. I, I want, by the grace of God, for our church to be an embodiment of what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians. Where it's the rich and the homeless, the poor, the rich, young, old, all ethnicities, all races, all cultures... Because somehow something trumps all of it. And it's not that we all voted a particular way, and it's not that we're all citizens of a certain place, but it's that we all have been baptized into Christ. And all of a sudden, that trumps everything else. Can that reality really happen? I believe that's the potential that the church has. That's what it means to take our baptism seriously. The trouble with this, though, is it means that we can't let our diversity 
ultimately be the thing that divides us. You can have different opinions. You can vote differently. You can think differently. You can have lively spirited dialogue. We can have debates about theological issues. Some can be cessationist and some can be continuous and we can talk about this. But we have to say there is one thing that trumps all of it and it is the name of Jesus Christ in whose name we have been baptized. And so your baptism has to mean more to me than your ideology. And your baptism has to mean more to me than your social status. And your baptism has to mean more to me than your political... Do you see what I'm saying? Diversity is great. The unity doesn't stamp out individuality. Unity doesn't mean uniformity. Unity doesn't mean we stop becoming individuals and we become clones. It doesn't mean that at all. In fact, have you ever wondered why in John's vision in the book of Revelation he doesn't see men and women sort of all, or even just sort of maybe this genderless kind of glob of humanity instead what John sees is rich diversity he's able to even say in his vision I saw men and women from every tribe and tongue wait a minute you mean cultural differences stayed d- distinct in the new creation sure seems that way you mean our distinctiveness and our differences and our individuality sort of remained and is preserved in the new creation vision? Yeah, sure seems that way. Why? Because being baptized into Christ is not the loss of self. It's the learning to love and forgive and become one with people who are not like you. The miracle of the church is not that we all become the same. The miracle of the church is that we're somehow able to be one in Christ. And that's what baptism says to us. Now, when you hear this, you say, well, there's one problem here, Glenn, and and that is that it, it seems like it's really squeezing on my desire for autonomy. <laughs> and really, it, we, we shouldn't shy away from saying this. We shouldn't tell people that the message of Christ has come and you'll have your best life now Um, we should say come and follow Jesus it will involve a cross because that's what Jesus' life involved and you say well this is is pretty suffocating though don't you think Glenn I mean this is pretty restricting don't you think yes it's true there is an idol that we all have and it's the idol of self And baptism calls us to abandon the idol of self. Most of the time, we think that we can can follow Jesus and still serve our self-interest. That we can follow Jesus and still sort of, I shouldn't say, let me say it this way. We we can follow Jesus and still do whatever we want. Be autonomous. That yeah, no, I'm good. I I sort of, you know, I give my money to church. I've said the prayer. I'm going to go to heaven. That's cool, right? I mean, I don't actually have to live differently, right? Baptism is this picture that says, actually, you know how the waters kind of cover you and surround you? And for a moment there, you're like, <laughs> maybe not. We don't hold you under that long. Don't worry. Don't be <laughs> There is this little brief moment when you say, is this good? It's supposed to make us realize that there's going to be the end of the fully autonomous self. I, I, I think if you examine some of the phrases we say to one another in our culture, you realize how much of an idol self is. Think of how we say to someone who's made a mistake, 
Oh, don't worry. I'm sure it was not your fault. How do you know? I, I'm sure you didn't mean to. Really? The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked, but we're sure that they didn't mean to be rude. Or maybe we say it about ourselves. I, I mean, maybe we don't want to, we're right not to judge someone else's heart, but maybe we say it about ourselves. We say, well, I'm okay because I love myself. And I am just, I'm, I'm wonderful. And I, I, that's not really me, you know, to... to, to Can I say something? Some of us need to be reminded of the worth that we have in Christ and to not see ourselves perpetually as this worm. That's certainly true. But I want to say that we don't come to the place of recognizing that. We don't come to our belovedness until we're willing to confess our brokenness. We don't come to the place of our belovedness in, in Christ until we're willing to confess our brokenness. I understand, I think, what counselors mean when they say you need to forgive yourself. I understand the intent of that. But strictly, biblically speaking, using the word forgiveness, it's impossible to forgive yourself. Because all through the imagery of the Bible, the imagery of forgiveness is to bear the weight of the wrong for another person. Bearing the weight of your own wrong is as impossible as sitting in your own lap. It's a nice idea, but you can't do it. (laughs) Someone bigger than you has to bear the weight of that wrong. We all want desperately to move from shame to acceptance. We all desperately want to move from unworthiness to worthiness. But there's only one way that happens. It doesn't happen by mind over matter. It doesn't happen by convincing yourself otherwise. It happens when we confess our sin. And God says, I've taken it on myself. And so this is no longer who you are. I, who knew no sin, Jesus says, became sin so that you might become the righteousness of God. So, so, so thank you for confessing that, but... Let me give you a new identity. You are no longer the sinner. You are the beloved. You are no longer a failure or a screw-up or a whatever or this or that. You are the beloved child of God. In a sense, this morning, what I want to do is to remind you of your baptism. To remind you that in baptism you've been given a new identity. That really, from the beginning you were made in the image of God. And sin took a toll on that image in you. And there were things that you could never do for yourself. But the moment you begin to confess that and reach out for help, you'll discover the God who extended grace long before we learned to ask for it. C.S. Lewis talks about this, this exchange and how we sometimes want to deal with God economically, bartering. Okay, you give me this and then I'll give you this. And Lewis writes, give me all of you. I don't, so much, I don't want so much of your time and so much of your talents and money and so much of your work. I want you, all of you. 
I have not come to torment or frustrate the natural man or woman, but to kill it. <laughs> no half measures will do. I don't want to only prune a branch here. I mean, this is what we think, right? I'm a pretty good person. I'll just come to church and then I'll become an even better person. Before you can get there, there's something that must be done. Lewis goes on, rather, I want the whole tree out. Hand it over to me, the whole outfit, all of your desires, all of your wants and wishes and dreams. Turn them all over to me. Give yourself to me. And what? I'll say, ha ha, that's the end of you. That's sometimes the image of God that we have, isn't it? The impression of God that we have. That God wants all of us so that he can say, thanks. <laughs> Snuffed. No, 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 no. He says, turn it all over to me, give yourself to me, and I will make of you a new self. In my image, give me yourself, and in exchange, I will give you myself. My will shall become your will. My heart shall become your heart. See, the Christian call to deny ourselves, to lose ourselves in baptism, is not like the Buddhist call to let the self be dissolved. You may be familiar with that, where the Buddhist things, let me disappear, let the self sort of disappear and dissolve into the universe so there is no pain and there is no joy, there is just oneness with the universe. The gospel says, give me yourself and I will give you myself. This is not about you dissolving into the universe, this is about you becoming fully alive. This is not about you dissolving into the this is about you coming fully alive alive I think something beautiful happens here when we get this when we recognize that the reason Christ calls us to go down into death with him is so that he can give us a new kind of life our life fully alive you know what it creates is it creates a willingness to be dependent on others as well I find that people who struggle to trust others are sometimes the people who have struggled to turn it over to the Lord. Turn your whole life over to the Lord. That really these two things are connected. That as we recognize that our baptism was about the surrendering of ourselves so that we can receive new hearts, new wills, new life, all of a sudden we realize, well, just as I've learned to depend on the Lord in a lesser but similar way I'm learning to depend on Christian brothers and sisters and so it's so uh, it's almost an oxymoron for a Christian to be a lone ranger it's really kind of an oxymoron for a Christian to say I've been saved into Christ and now I'm on my own because baptism says you've been baptized into Christ new identity and into the body of Christ new family at New Life Downtown, that place of vulnerability and shared stories happens most beautifully in our dinner groups, in our meal groups. So in different parts of the city, we have people that share a meal together in homes. It's not too late to join one. And the reason we do this is because a meal makes us slow down enough. Slow down long enough to get past the Christian Bible study happy faces, you know? Great, aren't you great? <laughs> a meal makes you slow down long enough to stop, look in one another's eyes and say, what's going on? And then as you break bread so that the bread may be shared, you realize something. Our lives can't be shared 
unless we are broken in front of one another. So I want my life to be shared. I want someone to do life with me. Well, do you know what the prerequisite to shared living is? Brokenness. That's why at New Life Downtown we say, blessed, broken, given. Given is about the stuff that we do as we're given into to serving one another and serving the city. Blessed is about how on Sunday mornings we rehearse the gospel narrative and remind ourselves of our blessedness. But broken, that takes place as we gather at one another's tables and the bro- allow the brokenness of our own lives to be displayed so that life can be shared. And I understand that that is difficult. I understand that we've been bur- many of us have been burned, have been hurt, and it takes a lot of work to say, can I do this again? My prayer for all of us this morning is that the Spirit of God would begin to remind us of what our baptism meant for us. That our baptism meant that that part of your story that you're ashamed of is no longer your identity. It's no longer who you are. Our baptism means that these men and women that you're not sure about are part of your family now. That somehow the risk of vulnerability has to be taken in order for trust to develop. As we prepare to come to the table, I want us to think, recall very deeply inside of us the power of what it means to say that in baptism we've identified with Christ and and been given something new been given this new name we mean it when we say that the worst parts of your story are not the defining piece of your identity we mean it when we say the worst parts of your story are not the defining part of your identity that in Christ you've come up new you're not a sinner trying to behave You're a beloved child of God empowered to live out in a new way. That changes everything. You're not an outsider trying to act like you belong in church. You're a beloved son and daughter (laughs) getting hold of how this love changes the way you live. It's totally different, isn't it? 